Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 63, being recorded on Wednesday, December 7th. 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome to episode 63, Jason and Scott Show listeners. We have a special guest tonight, so we're going to jump right into it. Um, We talk a lot on the show about what I call Mulligan, this never-ending drumbeat of news that we get uh, about store closures and that malls are on death's door, traffic's down. Um, Regular listeners will know we we tend to cover some of the latest news there. We figured who better to talk about the current health and future of mall-based retailing than one of the largest mall operators, GGP. GGP is publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange under GGP and is in the S&P 500. They own, manage, and lease over 100 retail centers in 40 states, featuring some of the highest quality retail properties in the U.S. Uh, And I think uh, one of the things, Jason, we need to talk about is doing a tour of these uh, as part of our our show. I wonder if we could expense this, but um, they're in the Ala Moana Center in Honolulu. That sounds like a fun one. Tyson's Galleria in D.C., Glendale Galleria in L.A., and the Water Tower Place there in Chicago. GGP's malls are more than just shopping destinations. They also have entertainment such as movie theaters, restaurants, ice skating, and other family-oriented activities. Today on the show, we're really excited to have Scott Moray from GGP. Scott is an EVP at GGP. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, Scott. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate uh, being asked to participate. Yeah, this is uh, this is exciting. It's the first time we've uh, the Scotts have outnumbered the Jasons on the show. So um, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good about this. I think we should pick on him and start some arguments of some kind. Uh, I don't, you know, obviously the superiority of the name Scott to Jason is where we could start. But um, uh, seriously, though, we really appreciate you coming, and Jason's going to kick it off. Scott, the first thing I'd like to point out is. The audience should totally uh, know this was coming, but I have spent the the night in three of the four malls that Scott mentioned, and wouldn't you know, the one I, that I haven't been to is Honolulu, which I'm a little bitter about. Well, listen, Scott, one of the things that our listeners are always really interested in is sort of how you got into your current role. Um, so can you, you sort of uh, give us a rundown on, on how you started your career and, and how uh, you chose this path? No, I'm, I'm happy to, and it's a... Um it's an interesting future path, I think, for mine. But if you go back, I started at Arthur Anderson in 1988 in the consulting division. And I was actually an RPG programmer on the System 38. Um, 1989 was one of my, I think it was the second project I had done there. It was a real estate company called Robes and Communities. And since 1989 on, I've been involved in real estate in kind of different forms. After Arthur Anderson, I ended up with Ernst & Young, I was a partner there. When Cap Gemini bought the consulting arm of Ernst & Young, I made a decision to leave. Um, at that time, I went to what was the first S&P 500 real estate company called uh, Equity Office as their CIO. And they grew about fourfold, roughly. We talk in square feet in our space. So they were about 25, 30 million square feet. And in a few years, we're well over 100 million square feet. 
I then went from there back into advisory work, and then in 2006 moved to London and opened a bunch of offices there. Uh, 2008, uh, this is going to surprise you. You could have a lot of questions about this. I moved to Lagos, Nigeria for two years as the COO of one of the largest, actually it was the largest real estate development company in West Africa. Um, my wife said she could live any, anywhere, and so I really tested anywhere, which I think I'm still paying for in some way. Um, <laughs> I went from there to a firm called Alvarez and Rasol. I don't know if you've heard of them. A lot of people um, aren't familiar with them, but for example, when Lehman's was going to effectively go under the night before, they called Alvarez and Rasol, and Alvarez and Rasol actually was responsible for managing and running Lehman's through the whole transition and the wind-down. They also do a lot of turnaround work. So anyway, I went to work for them in London, and I was running their real estate practice. And that was all very kind of financial stuff. We were doing work in Ireland, and I was in places like Croatia and Poland and Montenegro and Slovenia and, and, uh, and that part of the world. And then how I got to GGP is our CEO, Sandeep Mathrani, when he was at Forest City in the late 90s, I had met him then and done some work with him. And I called to congratulate him on his role at GGP. It's his first time as a CEO. And that ultimately led to conversations that um, made it easy for me to move over there. And I've been there just a little shy of six years uh, today. Wow, very cool. And correct me if I'm wrong, but when you were in Nigeria, didn't you send me a bunch of emails asking me to help you transfer money into the U.S.? (laughs) That wasn't you? Sadly, no. You know, they're incredibly bright people. They're just misaligned, I think, in what they do. And it's amazing. Like, there was a guy named Larry Ferris who was in the U.S. State Department, and he was responsible for commerce in Nigeria, and he became a good friend of mine. And you'd be amazed at how many people fell for those schemes. But you, you did not receive an email from me or one that appeared that was from me, but it's, a, it's certainly a fair statement. Very cool. And, and uh, did you have a family during that time? It seems like you were moving them around quite a bit. I did. I I have a wife and I have four kids, um, three daughters and one son. My youngest one, my oldest is 23 and my youngest one is 10. My youngest one was born in London. And, you know, if you go back in time, for me, actually, when I started college, my parents moved overseas for my dad's job. And, um, and I met friends of theirs that had families with young kids. And I thought, what an amazing opportunity, you know, for the family and for the kids to go through that. And my wife kind of had the same bug, so we felt you know, very fortunate to sort of have that opportunity to be able to do that. And, you know, for the kids, are very, I think, much more resilient than we are, even though at times we question that. So um, having said that, my oldest daughter definitely has the bug because she now, um, a couple months back, sold everything and bought a one-way ticket and now lives and works in Honduras. So I, I clearly have started some, some family trend. Oh my gosh! I was just actually imagining that you had a, a good diversity of accents amongst your children. Uh, I don't. Although my youngest <laughs> one had an English, you know, British accent, and um, and because all her time in Nigeria was right, former British colony, and we had control for a number of years, so they had kind of a British accent. So my little one, for a long time, uh, did actually, and sadly, which is true, she was getting teased for it, and we actually had her work with someone to try to, to try to get rid of that accent. But, um, but anyway, all of us pretty much speak the, the same version of English. Nice. And then, uh, coming to the current, can you tell us a little bit about your sort of your scope and your role at uh, GGP? 
Yeah, no, I'm happy to. So I'm part of the executive team, and I've got overall responsibility for uh, digital marketing, creative infrastructure, which means a lot of things in our world, and IT. And then I also drive a lot of the innovation, specifically what we, we all would refer to in this space as omnichannel, and how do we use aspects of services, whether those are digital or physical services, that continue to drive sales at our properties. Nice. And I'm imagining that digital marketing for a mall operator sort of encompasses both marketing for your properties and for your brand, as well as um, joint marketing efforts with all of your retail tenants. Is that fair? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, we're very, because it means a lot of things, right? So if you think about it from a B2B standpoint, um, which could be B2B, could be our investors or it could also be the retailers we work with, I'd say our digital marketing is, you know, 80, 90% geared towards the consumer. And then in some cases, and ideally, right, it's jointly with retailers. In some cases, it's on our own. And people get surprised, actually, by the way. I mean, if you look at our digital assets, you know, we're projected this year to have, uh, just about over 40 million unique visits to our websites. That always surprises people. And we have about 6 million people, the way I word it, that we have a meaningful digital relationship, meaning they've given us their information. We're able to augment that and segment that in some way to have a meaningful dialogue. Very cool. And am I remembering right? You guys also would have like your own sort of loyalty or, or frequency-based marketing Program. So you, you really get to know some of your, your customers pretty well. You know, we don't offer oh. today a loyalty program, actually. We're one of the few companies, small companies, or real estate property companies to not do that. Um, and there's a, there's a variety of reasons, which we could talk about later if it makes sense or not. But you know, a lot of it is about really what consumers are after, right? What do they really want? And as we would all say, and we're going to talk about what you're... I've never heard the term Mulligan, really, to be honest with you, until you guys, which is... I get the point. It's fascinating, actually. But if you if you look at why people come, at any generalization, usually there's some truth, but there's a lot of untruth to it, right? So only certain segments are very focused on what would be loyalty-based stuff. Um, and we have sort of five main segments that we look at the world, and that would be one of them. And the other four, you know, we don't believe loyalty... It's defined in rewards or in discounts in a way drives the behavior um, or influences their shopping behavior within our properties. Gotcha. Very interesting. Um, we may dig into that a little bit uh, deeper, um, but I, I did want to start by kind of just getting getting the overview. And it seems like you have a, a really broad scope. What do you do with your free time? Uh, I am fighting time. This is my word. I'm in my early 50s, so I'm fairly physically active, but it's meant to elongate my life, ideally, in some way. So, statistically, it's hard to say if that's going to work out, you know, the way I want it or not. But I'll do triathlons. I'm a runner. Um, I tend to do more kind of outdoors type stuff or things with my, you know, kids. And then I'll do random things like I'm doing. The, I've done the polar plunge every year in Chicago for six years. I'm doing it in Alaska. I mean, wants to donate in about 10 days for the Special Olympics. But um, most of my free time, either can be my family or kids or um, something related to some physical activity. Very cool. Well, that that is uh, fabulous. It's a little-known fact, um, but Scott and I are actually thinking about uh, quitting our day jobs and joining the Pro Beach Volleyball Tour as a, a doubles team. 
<laughs> I, I don't know you guys kidding. that well, but I, I'd love to see it. I'll, I'll help fund your start if it, if it makes sense. I, I was just thinking uh, Jason should do the polar bear plunge with you this year since you guys are in Chicago there. I think I think he would enjoy that a lot. Well, we could do it. It's March 5th, I think, in Chicago, and then I'm doing one in Anchorage, Alaska on December 17th. That, that would be more interesting if you want to come. I would love to do that one. I have never been to Anchorage, and that's uh, one of the few states uh, that I haven't haven't been to yet. So um, that might be a good uh, training, and then I'll be ready for our, our, our home plunge in, in Chicago. You would, you would be ready for sure. I grew up in San Diego, California, and I used to do the plunge there every year. No, It wasn't a very big deal. Actually, I, I went to. I grew up in LA. I went to college, University of San Diego. So I, I did the polar plunge quite often in Mission Beach. Yeah, it's not the same. Exactly. Usually, after a few drinks, going up and down uh, the like Grand Avenue. <laughs> it's when you fall off a catamaran, is what that's called. I think. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Scott, two quick follow-ups on the background. Um, are you guys what's kind of commonly referred to as a REIT? And um, if yes, for our listeners, um, you know, maybe give us kind of a high-level 101, what is a REIT, just so everyone kind of understands what that is. Yeah, we, we are a REIT, which stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And what it is is a an entity where the majority of your income, well, the majority of your income has to be made via lease-related revenue. And as part of that action, you've got to pay out the majority of your earnings to your shareholders. And it was a vehicle, if my memory's right, it might be a little off. I think it was originally invented, I want to say, in the 60s and 70s. And it didn't take much hold, really, probably until the early 90s. There were some changes in legislation on the tax side and some other areas that made it a more palatable vehicle for people to use. And really, in the last, you know, since then, I guess, the last couple decades is has performed quite well, certainly compared to the S&P um, 500. And actually, given that, it's actually a new category in its own because for years it was combined with financial services. And the last two months, two months has been placed in some category and something that can be tracked. So you have all kinds of REITs. We happen to be retail-specific properties. You can have industrial, office. Um, you can have what we call multifamily, which is housing. I believe there's actually prison REITs out there. I can't make that up. Um, and you can also have a public and private REIT. It depends on it. We happen to be a public REIT, but you could do a private REIT that has the same advantages to the shareholders and the investor base, but um, is obviously traded in a different fashion. Got it. Cool, that's helpful. And then uh, you mentioned that you drive innovation. Do you guys have... Uh, kind of like an incubator or a lab, or, or do you do more um, like venture capital kind of investing or all of the above? Um, what what are some of the, the mechanisms you use for driving innovation um, that, that you have? You know, we don't, we didn't put a label to it, which is a great question because some of the other, some of our brethren, of course, is Westfield Labs and um, they probably have separately the most branded one. But having said that, I think we're all doing for the most part, the same thing in regarding to trying to innovate and how do we improve the experience for the shopper and, again, further drive productivity for the retailers. Um, so I have a group below me that's totally focused on that. I've got a group that just fields new stuff. We, we have probably, I don't know, it's slowed down a little bit, three or five, maybe more a week of companies that are coming through that we haven't heard about that... Um, 
are selling something, right? And it tends to be some kind of omni-related type, whether it's a pure digital or a combination type service. Um, so that's what we have. And we do a lot, the, the, the luxury we have, we're very fortunate on the size of the portfolio. We're able to experiment, you know, quite a bit. And, and if something doesn't work, we're able to pull it back real fast or recalibrate it and have an opportunity to do that before we roll out in the portfolio. On the investment side, we, for the most part, really haven't. Um, there are some active funds out there tied to some of the other REITs, but for us specifically, you know, we feel our strength is what we know on the investment side and what we're very good at, which is, you know, traditional real estate investment. Cool. Is there an example of one of these kind of companies that, that has kind of, you know, maybe did a pilot program that's kind of worked out and you've kind of, you know, it seems like success would be you integrated into multiple properties or something like that, just to give people an idea of what that would feel like? Yeah, I can give you, I'll give you a couple examples. So let me go back in time a little bit, um, which is about, if my memory's right, I think it was 2013. And we had a lot of the pure play online people, companies, um, like Google or Amazon and eBay were all offering same-day delivery, if you remember. It was really hot. It still is, but it's different now, right? In my view, it's different. And um, we went out there and said, well, how do we use the scale of the mall and, you know, to go find someone effectively to do last mile, you know, same day delivery. And I'm not a logistics person. And I, you know, was talking to the traditional players that you would think, you know, that ship stuff. And there were a lot of boutique and startup firms that were, as there are now, actually, that were in that space. And we ultimately found a company called Deliv, D-E-L-I-V, mm-hmm. who really yeah. didn't have any clients. And, um tested them in some locations around the 2013 holiday season. We invited our mall brethren in because we thought it made sense for an industry. We launched with about 70 retailers, and here they are now, you know, off and running in I don't even know how many markets. I think they're almost in every major market, and almost every major retailer, uh, whether they explicitly stated or not, is using them for last-mile delivery, whether that was same day or not. So that would be a great you know, example of that. Another recent example this year, actually, so I'll go forward in time to, to this year, is we know one of the negative barriers our format is parking. And certainly, in some cases, you could, it's year-round. It depends on location just because the, the properties are just that busy and there's that much demand. And you could say with every property, seasonally, we'd all say it's an issue. You could go to any retail property and any super regional, you know, shopping center or mall, on Black Friday, and, and all of us would probably get frustrated in some ways trying to find a parking spot. So we spent a bunch of time, we launched this in January, and we were trying to find a way to solve that, and, and ultimately decided, went down this path after talking to a bunch of companies um, about it, that can we find a company that do the algorithms for street traffic, that also do mapping? That would be companies like Interex would be an example. There's a company called TomTom. There's a company called Here that's one of MapTech. I don't know if you know these guys, but a lot of them do maps that are fed to all the most uh, companies that you and I would use in our phone to navigate from point A to point B. But they also do yep. the algorithms. So we, we went to them and said, if I zone my lot, and statistically, you know, you do algorithms that convey the availability of the parking with the net zone. And um, we tested with a whole bunch of different companies earlier this year, quietly in four markets. And found one that ultimately we thought did a great job and the math made sense and was statistically accurate and that company was in rec. 
And we launched that in almost every one of our properties, not quite as close and doesn't have it's where we have a lot of open surface lots. So I think it's close to a hundred properties. We just launched that within the last two months to really great reviews. So those would be successful examples of where we found something, you know, tested something in a small scale, rolled it out, opened it up to the industry, same thing with parking and, and there's other companies now starting to use it as well, which we think is great. Um, and then I got a bunch of other ones. I don't know if you want to go through them where probably more to be honest with you, where we found something and, and tried it out and pulled back because we just didn't think it you know, made any sense. Yeah, I think that's helpful to kind of hear, um, you know, the kinds of things you're trying to solve with innovation. And um, uh, was, that's interesting. The parking one I, I hadn't heard about that, that uh, you know, I would love to use that myself. So I hope you're able to roll it out to, to every mall in America. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's this green, yellow, red thing. And what we're doing from a little bit is that you know, I, I, guess, I think it's not a great number, but it's a pretty good number. I think I take 40 million plus a week visits. I mean, if I was a pure play online, uh, company, I might, you know, my evaluation might be better than what it is. But um, having said that, actually, we structure it in a way for for it to end up everywhere else. So we right now are propagating on mall maps. There's nothing worse than going to a map and trying to find a store and you can't find it. Your traditional map, right? Forget coming to my asset. And so we are sharing our maps with everyone with the intent of whether it's on your phone, in your car, or in your Garmin watch, or whatever it is going to show up. But we are also very openly sharing that same token availability information. And without going by name, because none of them like it, you know, very quiet about what they do or whatever, we know they're starting to pick up that data within their, within their own app. And we're, we're really hoping it was going to happen this holiday season. They would launch, but they didn't. But I feel fairly confident in 2017, some of the major mapping companies will start showing that availability and incorporating that within their algorithm. What I would say is I want to navigate you from couch to store. And I want you to be able to do that anywhere you get. And it should tell you the quickest place to find a parking spot for whatever retail you're looking for. And so anyway, a long-term kind of play, if you want to use that word, is not assuming people come to my own assets, but how do I share this in a way to make it as easy as possible for people to, to uh, have a great experience? Awesome. So that, that's, uh, I think that really helps kind of understand the, the kinds of things you're thinking about. Um, I, I mentioned at the top of the show, let's jump into it, this whole Mulligan thing. Some of the stats we see and have talked about on the show, Cushman Wakefield came out and said that mall traffic is down 50% since 2010. Uh, this Green Street advisor says at least 15% of the malls need to close in the next five to 10 years. Uh, you know, we've seen closures from uh, some big boxes and some mall-based retailers like Sports Authority closed all 460 stores, Macy's has closed some, uh, et cetera. Um, you know, it, it, is this kind of overblown? Uh, I hear you talking about parking challenges, so that seems to be a, a data point that's obviously against this. Um, or, or is it really a tough environment out there for malls today? What, what's, give us a kind of a, you know, a, a frontline report for what it's like being a mall operator these days. No, I'm, I'm happy to. And I think, you know, again, generalizations never are completely true. And so having said that, and I'll talk about it in more detail, when you talk about Green Street and some other stuff, for certain, certain uh, property types within our uh, industry, without a doubt, there is um, some difficulty. And for others like us, and I'll explain why in a little bit, it's the exact opposite. But you, you also, it's really interesting, have to go back in time and a lot of people forget this is not the first time this is things like this have been stated within our space. 
So if you go back, if my memory is right, and I'm pretty sure it is, is August of 1998, Jerry Yang, who if you might recall, was the CEO of Yahoo. I don't know if you recall this. On the cover of Time Magazine, he's actually there was a picture of him, and I believe what it said is actually, kiss your mom goodbye. It was 1997. <laughs> it's fascinating, right? And, it, and it ha- it's happened since then. And then, of course, you know, the more recent cycle. And I think it's worth sort of talking about and breaking down in a couple different ways. So one is, just as a clarification, because you brought it up first, is about mall traffic, is mall traffic and store traffic are two totally different things. It's really interesting. Now, when the retailers talk, they talk about mall stores and non-mall stores, right? Just the way they're features. But the reality is they're really talking about store traffic. And I, I say that because I know for us, and we've said this in investor presentations other places, traffic for us has been up more than anything else. I think we had one year that was flat, and we've been up, actually. And what's happened, which is really interesting, I think, and this is a generalization I'm going next, but it's pretty close. If I go back seven or ten years, if, if someone you know, went to a, to a retail property, went to one of our properties. On average, they were visiting five stores per visit, six stores per visit. They're visiting less than three stores per visit right now. So there is no doubt store traffic is down. And I recall, let's talk about recent times, it was actually in January of 2014 when uh, there was a study that came out that said mall traffic was down 15.5%. And and we spent a bunch of time looking into this to try to understand really what was going on. And I'm going to share a bunch of these stats in, a, in, in, a, in time, actually, as part of this conversation. But that's what we really dug into the behavior. And what we know now is fact, and I, I say that because it's all over the place in separate studies. People are really spending a lot of time in advance of shopping online. Mm-hmm. So we know 80% of the people before they show up to our properties have been online, whether that's our digital assets, or whether that's whatever it may be, right? Looking online or specific retailers or reviews or articles. But 80% of them actually are, are already thinking about where they're going to go before they show up. So what's happening, if you take our, I'm going to get to the second part in a second that you asked about what, what's happening, sort of, or you're going to be less malls or not. But if you take our properties, even though store visits are down, right? Mall visits are up, we would, we would argue, for our portfolio. Store visits, without a doubt, are down, but sales are up. So that means for the people that are coming, they're coming with intent, and the conversion rates, which is, you know, the term, right, the retail term, but the conversion rates are up on those visits. And in many cases, the average ticket size for their visit is up as well. Um, so that's... So, you know, so it sounds it. like they're kind of window shopping online versus in the mall, and that's why they're visiting fewer stores. They're, they're coming with more kind of a transactional mindset than a browsing mindset. Is that, is that kind of how you piece all that together? That's how I piece it together. But I think, okay. you know, it's also interesting if you talk about, you know, these statistics, I'm sure you do as well as I do, if not better. But, you know, look at conversion rates of online versus in-store. Of course, the stores have a much higher conversion rate. It depends on what study, but they tend to be 20% up, right? Mm-hmm. And when you talk about online conversions, tend to go down. So it's interesting about no one's really defined what browsing is anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, if I spend hours on my phone and I eventually buy on my phone and how do I correlate the conversion rate of a 3% bad on a visit versus I'm browsing on my phone and, you know, going to the store, but without a doubt, 
this is true. The lines are getting so blurred. It's so hard to, it's so hard to say. So let me, let me go to the, uh, another point, which I think is um, a couple points, actually, I think, which is relevant. So one is that we know and believe, and there's been a bunch of studies, right? 90 plus percent of all sales are still in physical stores. I am, by, by saying that, not going to say that's not going to change. I don't want to diminish what's happening um, in, in different channels, but you sort of look at the rest of it and you'd say 10% is happening somewhere else. About We believe about 1%-ish is catalog. I'm actually being pretty conservative, I think, and 9% we would say is online. We also know roughly half, pretty close to half of online sales are from bricks-and-mortar retailers. And then we look at the half that's pure play, right? One company's dominating, without a doubt, right? The dominating sort of that category of what online sales is. And, and um, although now, actually, the Roku stores as well, I guess they could be included in British one retailers. But anyway, but we would look at that break now. And what's interesting for Kix, we went back and said, what was catalog at its peak? Catalog sales at its peak, and my year is going to be off, so forgive me. I know it's late 80s. I want to say it was 87, but I think I'm wrong. It's late 80s. Catalog sales at its peak was 10%, actually. Um, now, I say those things. You and I know, and I'm sure you know, books, for example, if my memory's correct, which it is, books peaked at about 42% online. The average pie year-over-year sales, right, for the whole category, online and offline is going up. But actually, the percentage of online's come down slightly. It actually started coming down initially slightly two years back in the city of Seattle. And that was before, I think, Amazon had even opened these stores. had anything to do with them, actually. It was just it was a normal calibration, I think, between channels. Some still getting figured out. Some that I think are where they're probably going to end up, which you might argue with books or you might argue with electronics and those things. But there's a normal kind of calibration. Now, when I look at it, I want to go a level further. We spent time, actually, and there's been several studies from a bunch of companies on this about what happens when an online retailer opens a physical store? Have you, have you heard these things before or not? Is it new or? Uh, no, yeah, we, we've talked about this on this, on the show quite a bit. Yep. Yeah. It's really interesting, right? We, what we call mm-hmm. it is the multiplier effect where mm-hmm. we know the physical stores help drive sales in the online channel. And then if you believe that to be true, then you would believe the reverse correlation. That if I close the store, you would see a negative correlation. And one of the large department stores, of which you mentioned earlier, based in the East Coast, their CFO, I think it was a Merrill Lynch conference, two years ago said the exact same thing. She says when they close stores, uh, they see online sales in the same trade area go down. I think at the time, she had said one and a half to two times. Um, yeah. So there's fascinating correlation. So on an aggregate thing, that's what we would say cross-channel. Now, when you talk about malls specifically, there's 1,100 malls in the U.S., and we grade them like school kids. The industry does. And Green Street, which you referred to, um, is one of them, actually. And they tend to be ABCs. There's degrees below that. And without a doubt, there's consolidation going on. So Green Street had said 15% of the malls. There's about 300 sort of C lower C or lower quality properties. Um, and without a doubt, also, we all know and read the stories about those locations changing or closing, right, effectively, and malls um, shutting down. Um, but when you look at the total pie and, and you look at it from, we use the word gross leasable area, so GLA, right? I don't know if you had heard that term or not before. And 
it's interesting too with a couple fronts. So one is if you look at GLA in the U.S. compared to the countries, we have more retail space per capita, GLA per capita, than we do than any other country does. So we're roughly about 24 square feet per person. You could take other countries like Australia at 10, I think UK is at 5, China is at 2. But if you take that further and you take that 24 uh, GLA, right, the square feet, from a retail standpoint, mm-hmm. it, there's a couple ways to slice that up, actually. So one is if I take that, there's roughly 20 of that 24 is open-air centers. And there's the rest of it, so roughly four, ends up being regional shopping centers. And then you take the quality question, which is forget what format it is. It doesn't, right? We're going to shop where we want to shop. Out of that 24, actually, and you look at it a slightly different way, there's about 19.7 that's mid to low quality. So 19, 19.7 square feet per person that's viewed as mid or lower tier. And that leaves you, right, with just over four of high quality. And then you take our portfolio within that, we're 8.2% of the, of the four uh, square feet per capita of high-quality real estate. So I'll bring that up because there is going to be some consolidation. There is consolidation going on. It's, it's taking out, and some, unfortunately, right, some people that are on the lower tier and the, on the quality of their properties are closing. It's actually increasing demand on the high-quality real estate. Um, and, and that's what's happening now, and how that gets washed out in the end, it's hard to say. And I think if there were questions, and there are, I think you'd ask me before, the middle, what's going to happen with the stuff in the middle, and where does it all end up? I think um, no one knows all the answers, but I think without a doubt, as Green Street stated, that you know, those lower quality tier properties are certainly at risk. That's a... a- a great overview. And we've talked a little bit about that on the the podcast before that essentially like across all malls, um, those a malls are really performing well. And in fact, um, the, the, the top a malls of which you, you guys have several, you know, achieve the same or even, you know, more heady growth rates than some of the big e-commerce sites. Um, it's, it's really those, those B and C malls, that that are the most distressed um and so you know it feels like that gap is widening um i wanted to go back though to to another interesting point you made the whole distinction between trips and visits right and the retailers are seeing less footfalls in each individual store but um we're still seeing more more uh overall trips uh to go shopping and you know, I, I've made the same conclusion that you have that essentially what's happening is a big chunk of the pre shopping activities that we used to have to do in the store, we can now do digitally before we get to the store. So when we when we do get to the store, we're not doing that same pre shopping and we already have bigger buying intent. Um, and that that makes perfect sense. That's uh Forrester have some stu- some stats that that something like 54% of all, all retail purchases are now digitally influenced. So that, that digital pre-shopping is totally prevalent. I think mm-hmm. Deloitte has a study that maybe is even a little higher percent than that. Um, but the magic question to me then, you know, so, you know, this is all becoming an omni-channel story. Do those brick and mortar stores, the, do those stores in your A malls need to evolve? Should the, 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 
the layout of the store? Should the merchandising in the store, should the experience in the store be changing now that we know um, the, that those those stores are getting the customer when they're further down their decision tree than in the old days when you got, you know, a really non-committed buyer walking in the store. And are you seeing any indications that, that the retailers are thinking about that in their, their store experience design? You know, I, I put this in two categories because one is just about good service. You know what I mean? Like you want to go in there and be helped the right way. You want to be able to find what you're looking for and, and there's a service aspect, but there's also as part of service, the way I word it is the shopper, she or he, it's controllable convenience, right? I want it my way. I might want it shipped to me. I might want to drive up and, 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 and have it put in my car and picked up. I might want to reserve it and go in and do it. I might want same-day delivery. Like, there's all these options, and, and the expectation of the shopper, I believe, for a variety of different reasons, which are all good, actually, I think, in the end, is is much higher about their means to control the experience part of it. Not the experience in your sense, but I, I think of those as services. I'll get to experience in a second. And so we talk about curbside pickup. Like, we piloted curbsides. I'm not familiar with them at Glendale Galleria with Jaron, which I think is a fascinating model. We have done um, same-day delivery, continue the same-day delivery. We've done bag holds. We've done all kinds of stuff, and we'll continue to do that in different ways that, where there's demand for it. But it's this controllable convenience idea, is, I think, is, is really, really true. And so every retailer now is trying to figure that out. And sadly, and there's a good part to it, but the sad part is most retailers really aren't good at cross-channel integration. If you go to their websites and try to even find where their stores are or even take it further to find where a particular item is in the store, if you want, right? They don't sell them very well. Or how many times have you gone into a store and wanted something that didn't have it and the clerk didn't even offer to try to help it to get to you online and ship to your house? It really still happens a lot, actually, more than it should. But they're trying to get there, and there are a lot of good retailers that are there now and are pushing the envelope, and I think they more advanced. But to that, to me, in a way, is service. The experience one is a great question. I, and I read a book um, a couple of years back. I think it's been, I've read it three times since, but called The Experience Economy. I don't know if you've read it. And I, I happened to meet the author, which is fascinating. And they're put the science behind what you define as an experience. Because if you and I, or you and I and Jason, I want to exclude them, three of us have a conversation about the difference between Build-A-Bear, Apple, Nordstrom, and Starbucks, parts of that conversation would be similar, but so many parts would be completely different, right? There's a totally different thing, actually, in this game of things. And so experience means a bunch of different things to different people, and I do think there is something there. So I'm not denying what you're, what you're talking about, Scott. I think it is. But I think it, I don't think there's a cookie-cutter approach to it. It depends on what it is you're merchandising and what you're selling. And it depends on what segment of what you're operating within. That, that word experience means something different. And that's why I think we're a lot of companies trying to think for themselves. They're, they're trying to do it in a generalization way but they really need to look at their own market and their own merchandise and their own consumer segment and, and find an alignment of model that ultimately is going to please the people that they're after to then hurt, you know, further drive sales. Does that make sense? 
Totally. Kind of pivoting a little bit, one of the interesting things um, that you know we, we see a lot of research about is uh, the millennial demographic. And, and I think you mentioned you have kids. I think you said ten to twenty-three. So you got a you know got some millennials in there, and you probably also have what I think is being called Gen Z. Um, so have you guys seen any interesting demographic shifts with them? You know, there's. Um, there's a common thing I hear that they don't go to malls at all. Um, I, you know, I don't see that with my kids, but, um, I'm just kind of, you know, curious what different behaviors you've seen there and anything you guys are doing to make sure you're relevant for that demographic. Well, let me, I'm going to answer that. Let me step back just for a second, I think, and where, you know, we're, we're in the curation business, but we're curating retailers. And if you look at it as well, I mean, we're, by market. So if I go back a couple of years, three years back, we really wanted to put the science behind um, how we identify retailers for location, as well as put the science behind how we market to them. And so we created a base survey of about 100,000 people, and we're able to update that every six months. And by market, I can tell you who's in that market by the segments that we sort of look at the world around the productivity around that segment and my draw relative to our retail property. And I know what retailers they like. I know how I could be communicated with. And so if I go, for example, and talk about, uh, which was the millennials, in Tallahassee, uh, we have a property called Governor Square. And Governor Square is right next to the campus of FSU, which has 40,000 students. And then there's, I think, four, it might be five other universities, and we end up with aggregate number of, you know, about 60,000 students that are in that area. That's a millennial market, you'd say, really, right? And yep. obviously, we curate that t- totally differently, right? As you would expect. But I, I, I think a lot of cases in the industry, uh, people tried to sort of pick and curate uh, using an art. It's a classic thing of art versus a science, right? Like, hey, I think they want this. But so often not, you've got to have the science behind it. So we've got this great balance. So we look at Governor Square in Tallahassee, and we're curating that property for that market. And the interesting part in our format is anywhere, this is an average, so it's not exact, but anywhere from 7 to 12% of our retailers change every year. No one realizes that. Malls are constantly changing and constantly in flux. And tenants are moving and tenants are being added and it's this fascinating thing. So I then take uh, Governor Square and earlier you brought up Water Tower in uh, some Michigan Avenue um, in Chicago. And obviously, I curate that dramatically different than I would Plano Galleria or Alamana Center you brought up or uh, Otay Ranch Center down in San Diego. And so that's the interesting part of this. So, and I'm going to get really specific in the question in a second. So when I look at that, like, we're happy with the performance of, you know, the portfolio that we have when we're aligning to those segments, which in some cases are skewed in a variety of ways, whether that's demographically or a psychographic basis and sort of driving that behavior. So with millennials, I would say if I have the right retailers, they're going to come, right? I'm going to get them. Now, having said that, there's there's all kinds of stories on both sides, right? There's stories that they're not going. All they're doing is buying stuff online. There's stories of them going. Like I read a study two days ago, and it was, um, re- I don't think retail experience something, but yeah, they were talking about. It's that it Opinion study. Lab study. I knew you guys I would like that one. Right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's fine when you could write. But that one would say 30, 37% of millennials prefer malls. It was something like 85% of them, you know, went once a month last summer. Um, 
No, I'm sorry. 85% of it once during the summer, 60% once, once a month. I mean, but the point is you see all these different stats on them, and um, it's interesting. Now, I'll talk. I have, I have, my, I have a 23, 21-year-old daughter and an 18-year-old son, and, um, you know, it's interesting. None of them really shops the same. And I, I, I think when you start skewing younger, like there were studies last year that came out, like high school kids aren't going or younger, but, you know, malls are still a very set part of the community, which we could argue to you at a time, but what, right, which could or couldn't argue, but really are in some ways, I think. But the flip is it's a safe place for people to go, not that it's unsafe outside of it, but how many places, I think, I could say this for me as a kid when I was 12 or 13, my parents were willing to drop me off and let me go roam around for myself, maybe go see a movie with my friends and get picked up. And that's the reality of still what's happening, you know, today in many ways. As you skew up, you see the trends that I do on retailers, and some are hot and they slow down and others are hot, but without a doubt, they are still stopping them. Um, and I think without a doubt, probably the, this idea of controllable convenience, me, I want it my way might be driven more by them and influencing the rest of us than it is by anyone else. Um, but the, the end of it, if, if, if the retailer or wherever it is, if, if it's the right retailer, it doesn't matter where the retailer is, we're going to go. The same thing that we would, if, if it's a retailer or we're fascinated about it or a friend told us about it, you're, you know, you're going to go. So for that reason, we spent a lot of time around being sure we got the right retailers in every market. And, and a mix that makes sense. Um, and I think because of that, you know, we, we, we feel like we're capturing our share of the That That makes perfect sense. And we've, we've talked a lot about mix of retailers, but one of the things I read a lot about millennials is relative to other generations, they're maybe spending a lower percentage of their wallet on things like apparel and more of their wallet on experiences and food and things like that. And, and I know that those experiential elements and those, those sort of entertainment elements are, are part of the mix on, in your, your properties as well. Are you seeing um, the, uh, the shift there as well to sort of cater to, to specific audiences? Well, I think without a doubt, you're seeing a big increase in entertainment and dining right across the portfolio. And we were probably underserved in that. You're seeing a lot of what would be more modern-day food halls, right? Because you've got food courts, but food halls is a sort of different dynamic and experience, and I think that plays into it. But I also think with the millennials, what's happening is they, if you talk about sort of the shared economy and you look at um, organizations like Second Time Around or, or um, I forget the one in Chicago that does really well, where effectively you take the clothes you have and they're giving you money for those clothes. Mm-hmm. They're starting to realize the different value, resale value, and long-term value, whether they keep it forever or not, of the things they're buying. And I think that's starting to influence the behavior on the, on the quality and the amount of money they're willing to spend on certain categories. So um, that, to me, is an interesting trend. Without a doubt, um, uh, you know, there's other folks that would probably argue it a different way, and those retailers are doing quite well also, but um, I think it depends. But Back to your original question on dining entertainment, without a doubt, and we we've done a lot there. We'll continue to do a lot there, um, and you know, combination of what you would say is more local type um, entities in those categories combined with and balanced with regional and national players. 
What's the, uh, um, I hadn't heard of a food hall. Uh, I mean, I have a mental image of it, but not in the mall context. What, uh, tell us a little bit more about that trend. You know, it, 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 it's trying to sort of redefine that dining experience and make it much more of a um, environment with greater variety but openness and, and much more of a, a warm feeling. I don't know a better way of describing it. But if you think of a traditional food court, it's very much kind of get up and go, right? And I yeah. think food halls is really trying to change the types of restaurants and the types of food options that are there and make it much more of a communal kind of warm type feeling environment. So kind of a hangout. You don't feel like, you know, someone's standing over you getting ready to wash the table <laughs> kind of a thing. So, sure. so, so kind of more of that third place kind of a mindset where people can feel, you know, good, just kind of chilling out and staying for a while. Is, yep. that, is that kind of the vibe? Okay. Uh, and, and that certainly has worked out well for me. When I started my career, I used to have to live off of like Orange Julius and hot dog on a stick. And now I have a much, much better uh, food options when I work in malls. So I, I'm certainly grateful for that. Uh, as we look forward a little bit, like ha- how, what 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 do you think we should uh, expect to see in the the mall of the future? If I if I jump forward five years and and you know some of the consolidation trends that you've talked about have played out and um, you know there's a little more equilibrium with the the digital pre shopping and all those sorts of things are are your best properties going to feel very similar to how they do today? Is it just going to be a different mix of stores? Like, what, do you guys have a a POV about how this is going to evolve? So I, I, I would say if you talk about the mall of the future, one is that we've got a new project, a new property we're doing in Norwalk, where um, we view obviously a mall of the future because we're going to build it in the future or in the design process. And that's very much about the architectural aspect to it. But also I think about the balance and types of um, retailers we have in there and, and the sort of visual and entertainment and dining and shopping experience we can add to it. But I think when you take it on a broader scale, when you talk about the, you talk about sort of retail in the future and shopping in the future, I think the the retailer's ability to offer more services to the consumer, whether that was again what I referred to earlier on, I want to get it my way. So if it's something that I bought and I want it, you know, brought to me immediately, or it's something that I want to go and pick up, or something I want to try on and see. Or if I want to be in the store and share it socially in some ways and, and do that with my friends and make my decision and sort of all these factors about how we wrap around um, both digitally and a physical sense what's going on. I, I think ultimately the retail properties in the future, it's really about the retailers in the future are providing as much more dynamic, flexible experience that the consumer is looking for. Very cool. I um, have one other question. We don't we don't normally take call ins, um, but as as some of our regular listeners may know, um, my mother is one of the, uh, our listeners, uh, and uh, the listeners may not know my mother is actually a famous city planner. So uh, <laughs> she's super excited about the evolution of the malls from sort of insular places that were like you know like the traditional original kind of regional mall with a huge parking lot moat around it um, to, you know, a lot of your more successful properties now are much more tightly integrated into the community. Right. And you, you know, you kind of feel Mm -hmm. like you're, uh, you're, you're part of the community and they have like great pedestrian access. And oftentimes it's not super obvious 
when you've walked onto the property and when you haven't. And so uh, on her behalf, I have to ask, um, is, is uh, do those sorts of malls perform better? Is that a trend that you see continuing or um, should, should she get used to more more uh, uh, moats around the, uh, the malls? Parking, yeah, parking. I think it, it, it depends on the market. So if I took Alamoana, where, where the three of us do need to go, um, which is which is in uh, Honolulu, and we've got condos going around there and a bunch of other things, and, and, and that market, the demand is there, and it makes sense. And I take urban properties. So if I took Water Tower, for example, in Michigan Avenue, we specifically aren't doing... Um, anything outside of the the retail we have there, but it's just sort of ingrained and in part of the community. And then you would go other places. So we're talking about San Diego, right in the beginning, where where I think you were saying you were from, where you grew up. And you go down to Otai, uh, the property had done Otai uh, Ranch Center, and it's very open, really cool, like vibe. Actually, I love that property. But again, it doesn't—it doesn't warrant having these other aspects on site relative to whether that was housing or whether that was office space or something else. So, I think you find it in certain markets, the demand's there that makes sense to do it. And you think you look in other formats, like the ones I talk about, where it's just—it just—it actually would look odd. Actually, it would, if you did something like that, I think it wouldn't fit in with the community and have the the experience people are looking for. Very cool. Well, I certainly appreciate that answer, and uh, it'll come as no surprise to our listeners that it's happened again. We've wasted a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. So, uh, Scott, I'm really grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule, especially around holiday, um, where I imagine you you have a, a, lot, a lot of other retail obligations and sharing some of your insights and your background with our listeners. No, I'm happy to. My pleasure. Yeah, and uh, I'll chime in and say uh, thanks, Scott, and it's always good to have more uh, Scots on the show, so uh, appreciate the solidarity there. Uh, and thanks for listening, everyone. We hope your holiday traffic is increasing and up to the right. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.